Good morning. It is good to be with uh, those from CMU and for the others who have wandered in from the from the workshop. And uh, it's an awesome thing to uh, to be able to praise God together and learn about God. Because in learning about God, we have the opportunity to be able to praise Him even more. Uh, the deeper we get to know God, and the more that we are able to trust and follow Him, the more natural praise becomes. This morning as we talk about how to live a guilt-free life, uh, I think it's super important that we, that we ground the explanation in, in Scripture. And so uh, we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture this morning that's going to serve sort of as the, the, the foundation for our lesson, and then we're going to be looking at several others. But what I want you to know is the idea of forgiveness and the removal of guilt. It is something that every culture and every human being always longs for. But it is vital that we know that God, while he also longs for us, he provides a means that we can achieve that. And it's not just by making ourselves feel get better. We literally can live in the reality of a guilt-free life. In 1 John chapter 1, John writes these words when he says, This is the message that we've heard from him. And declare to you, God is light, in Him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with Him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim that we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his words not in us. Now, as we talk about how do you live a guilt-free life, as you look in 1 John, there is the first thing that stands out to me is that John is just very upfront in saying, "There's, there's one thing that you cannot do in order to live a guilt-free life. And there's one thing that that it's going to be impossible for you because ultimately you go, how do I live a guilt-free life? How about me giving you this explanation going, if you want to live a guilt-free life, here's all you have to do, and that is not sin. Don't you feel better now? So you can be guilt-free, don't worry. You can have this peace, you can have this serenity, you can have this constant lightness in your step, and all you have to do to achieve that is not sin. Well, the problem with that, John says, is that it's an impossibility. And those of us who know ourselves this morning would acknowledge already today that when when we got up, we began a process of committing sin that leads to our guilt and to our feeling guilty. I was, just came from a class for, from Jeff Walling. And Jeff is an amazing communicator. And if there are any preachers in the audience, all of us would probably acknowledge that there are times when you listen to Jeff where you sit back and you go, wow, that's good, and I wish it wasn't. Right? Hey, I want to go hear Jeff. And you're hoping to hear good stuff. And at least publicly go, yeah, I want to hear some great stuff. But on a more personal level, what we're really going is, I want to hear him screw up. I'd like to hear Jeff Welling just suck it up for once and walk away and go, man, that was lousy. And there's that little jealousy that comes in, and there's that little bit of envy. And if we're honest with ourselves, and we have a memory that's greater than, say, 30 seconds in our short-term reserves, then we acknowledge already today we have been selfish or we have been prideful, or we have been unkind. And so the idea that we can just, that we can somehow just, just, you know, live sinlessly, is it true? And if you look at what John says in 1 John 1, 7, he says, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and don't live out the truth. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, he says, you're just lying to yourself. So when you think you're sinless, you're really just lying. And then later on in verse 10, he says, listen, what you need to know, if you claim to be without sin, you make him out to be a liar. So you make the Holy One a liar in the, if, if, if you claim to be without sin, which ought to make you feel incredibly guilty. You ought to just acknowledge if you have, think that you've not sinned, you're a liar, and so all of a sudden guilt becomes a reality. 
So when guilt becomes a reality, there are any number of ways that you and I can deal with it. And you notice there, there, there's ways that we, that in our world, because guilt is a universally, it is universally despised. When you go to a court, you don't want to be considered guilty. When you have an argument with your spouse, you want to be the one that's guilty. When you're trying to straighten out your kids, you want to be the one that's right. You want to be the one that's not guilty. And so what do we do? Well, we try to deny that we're guilty. We deny that we've got a sin problem. Even though we know that we do because we don't know how to deal with that sin problem because we never experience the freedom that Jesus can bring, we think that somehow we can't experience that, so we deny it. Or we justify it. Or we minimize it. Or we just ignore it and stick our head in the sand. Or we bury it. But the problem with sin and guilt is that while we may be able to do all of those things, sin and guilt are like an untreated infection. You may be able to find some things that can cover the pain, that can mask the problems, but if it's not treated, if the if you simply cover the symptoms and you don't address the problem, that infections will grow, and even the most basic and easy-to-treat infection can be one that ends your life or hobbles you for the rest of your life. And so a lot of us, we're living in this, this, this sort of these, these various ways of acting like we don't sin, and we put a smile on our face, but inwardly we're dying. And the sad thing is, is that we don't have to die. We don't have to walk in pain and difficulty and in a a, a general degrading of the quality of our real life. So John says, you just need to know up front, you're not going to be able to to live guilt-free because you don't sin. And while you may go, I know I don't, I sin, he goes, well, you you're not going to be live guilt-free by denying it in any one of those ways that I just mentioned. So the question becomes, what can I do to live a guilt-free life? What, what I do that allows me to live a guilt-free life? And there are three hints within this passage that we've just read in 1 John chapter 5 that John says, here's some things. Let me tell you things you can't do. You can't live sinlessly. You can't live in denial because you're just a liar, and so guilt occurs again. But let me tell you three things that you can do that will allow you to live with joy and a freedom that's impossible by simply denying what's going on. So what can I do? Well, the first thing I commit to do is I commit to, live, to, to doing the right thing that I just make this commitment that I'm going to live in a way that doing what God wants me to do is going to be the priority of my life over doing the things that I would want to do. Now, the way that he says this in 1 John 1, 8, he says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, purifies us from all sin. Now, what John recognizes in that verse is that even then when we are walking in the light, we are still incapable of living perfectly. And so we acknowledge that because even when we're living in the life, and we'll talk about what happens as we, as we go on down with that, but John still points to this reality that guilt-free living is tied with our commitment to being and doing what God wants us to be and doing what God wants us to do. For I walk in the light. If you notice in 1 John 1, 5, he begins by saying, this is the message we've heard from him and declare to you that God is light and him there is no darkness at all. So this idea of the light is this area to where I'm trying to walk within the will of God. I'm trying to hit the mark that he calls me to. Now understand, even when I'm really trying to live in the way that God wants me to, I'm going to slide, I'm going to miss the mark. That's both a reality and an excuse. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, you know, nobody's perfect? Absolutely true. And I've dealt with people who are broken in their sin, and they're going, oh, I feel so bad because I know I'm not perfect, and nobody's perfect, but there is a deep longing to follow God. And then there are those that I've dealt with as they're, they're confronting the affair that they've had that have left their wife and their children absolutely decimated. 
as we've watched them engage, some person engage in a sin that has left them in a situation to where now they are addicted and full relapse and nobody's perfect comes out, not as simply a statement of the reality of the human condition, but a justification for the human condition. And so as John writes, he wants us to know that guilt-free living is possible. But one of the things he wants us to know is that in that guilt-free living, there needs to be a commitment to doing what God wants us to do. You see, King David in the Old Testament described his sin, and, and in describing his sin, he gives two classifications for sin in Psalms 19. And in that in, in that classification, David understands some of the nature of God and the nature of sin that it's important for you and I to grasp. In Psalms chapter 19, he's going to describe two types of sin. The first type of sin that he's going to describe is a secret sin or a hidden sin. And you may be thinking that he's talking about his sin with Bathsheba that he kept hid for over a year, and that's not at all the kind of sin that he's talking about. When he says in Psalms 19, verse 12, who can discern his errors, declare me innocent from hidden faults, he's not talking about the sins that he has hidden, but he's talking about the sins that because of his human nature are hidden for him, from him, sins that he doesn't even know that he's committing. You see, we commit sins that we know that we're committing, but honestly, every day we commit sins that we don't know that we're committing. Sins that are hidden to us, sins that we are not trying to do, that we are walking in the light of God, and we're trying to be everything that He want us to, wants us to be. But my goodness, even when we're trying to walk in the light, we miss the mark. There are times I, 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 I'm, I'm a little ADD, And so there are times where I'm absolutely focused on a task that is godly. I'm focused on something that's right. But as I am focused on what is right, I will interact with somebody or I will miss the interaction with somebody more specifically. And I walk by somebody without saying hello or making them feel loved. And those from the crossings will know that sometimes I will go back. I won't even realize it at the time, but on, on a fairly regular basis, I'll go back to somebody and say, listen, you know, I know I, I saw you, and, and yet I don't remember saying anything to you. And, and I want you to know that, man, I, I'm glad that, that I got to be with you, and I'm glad we're together. And sometimes they'll go, oh, no, you came up and you hugged me. Oh, Sorry for not appreciating the hug. And, and, and you know what I mean? And, and, and then other times they'll go, oh, Robert, I know you were, we were busy. When we, one of the things when we were here the day before yesterday, when we first got to the workshop, we were standing over by the, the couches over there, and I came up, and there were some people that, that I said hi to, and, and then I walked off, and I came over here, and I'm going, man, there was three people there, four people there, and I remember saying hello to, to three people, but there was one guy that was standing back there, and so I went back and said, man, I, I don't even know if I said hello to you, but, man, it's so good to see you. Now, you're going, that's not a a big deal, but it's missing the mark when the Bible says that the greatest command is for us to love each other. When the way that we convince the world that we are his disciples is through our love and that love is a visible thing in the context of John chapter 13, if somebody were to see me interacting in that situation, they would go, you like those three, but you didn't particularly care for that guy. And whether I realize it or not, I've, I've missed the mark. And David says, God, will you help me to deal with those hidden things that I don't even know that I'm doing? Help me to be more righteous in those moments that I'm not even understanding that I'm being unrighteous. Help me whenever I'm walking in the light to stay more within the center of the light and not maybe stray to the the perimeters of the light. Help me to really be what you want me to be. And the secret or the hidden sin in the context of both the psalm that David speaks in Psalms 19 and in 1 John, that hidden fault, that oblivious fault that you have. Quite frankly, that oblivious sin is the one that God forgives the most freely and the most naturally and easily. I don't know how to use the words to describe it. But that's not the only kind of sin that that we see in David's struggle. The second sin is is, is a sin 
That is, he says, keep me from hidden faults. And then in Psalms chapter 19, in the second half of that verse, he says, keep your servant, in verse 13 actually, he says, keep your servant back from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. So he says, keep me back. God, help me to to really be committed to obeying you and help me to be obedient in the areas of ignorance that I have to where I just don't know. Help me somehow. But then he goes into a word, a sin that he describes as presumptuous. And the word that he uses in in the Hebrew, Zaid, has to do with an arrogant sin that you know you're committing, and you're committing it somehow thinking that God's way isn't right at this moment for me, that the more beneficial thing for me and the right, the, what I want to do trumps what God says I need to do. And he says, God, I want you to keep me back from those hidden sins, but I also want you to make sure that, you're, that, you're, that you are keeping your servant back from the arrogant sins, the presumptuous ones. Don't let them dominate me. And it's the arrogant sins, quite frankly, that end up dominating and controlling us. And he says, God, if you'll keep me back from the arrogant, presumptuous, I'm going to do what I want because I want to do it. The sins that when you're confronted, they're not secret. You've been confronted with something. But rather than conceding, going, God, I'm wrong, I'm sorry, I want to do what's right, you begin to get defensive and you're angry and you're prideful and you're going to hold on to protect yourself. But in protecting yourself, you endanger yourself. And David says, God, keep me back from them because, man, when I get involved in them, they rule over me. But also, he says, that when you protect me from those. When you help me deal properly with the sins that I know are sins that I'm likely because of my temperament or because of my habits or because of my desires, because of my selfishness, God, whenever you, when those rule me, I, I don't get a chance to live in forgiveness. I don't get to live a guilt-free life. So in 1 John, John just subtly says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, He's giving us this idea that he's saying, listen, and the text of 1 John that we're reading is all about God forgiving and God transforming us, but it starts with this commitment to walk in the light. And if you want to live a guilt-free life, if you want to live a life where you experience God's forgiveness and victory, God says, then make a commitment to do the right thing, walk in the light of God, and anything that is outside of the light of God, you need to view it for the darkness that it really is. It is not going to bring blessing into your life. So I start by committing to doing the right thing. To where his ministries, campus ministries, I'm going to do the right thing. And by the way, it is so important that we do the right thing for, for, for the effectiveness of our ministries. We're going to talk about that as we go down a little bit here. But understand that if you have a ministry that you don't have people that are committed, if all they're wanting to do to be is to be forgiven and not be victorious, if they want their guilt to be something that is just a reoccurring thing over the same thing, you're never going to have an effective ministry. Because sin in 1 John and guilt are darkness. And darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Start with a radical commitment, no matter where you are, that I'm going to be an obedient follower of Jesus. And I am going to do the right thing. So I commit to doing the right thing. Secondly, John says you need to confess when you do something wrong. Starts off with this commitment, I'm going to do the right thing, but any of us have ever committed to doing the right thing, remember that very close in proximity when we committed to doing the wrong thing, I'm going to do the right thing, and uh, I did the wrong thing. It's the Romans 7 thing, right? Why are the bad things the things that are easy to do, and the good things are the things that are hard to do? Why do the things that I really want to do, I don't do, and the things that I don't want to do, I end up doing? If you're an addict or have family members who are addicts, I love reading Romans 7. Because a lot of people that, are, that, that, that aren't so aware of their sin, they'll read Romans 7 going, I don't get it. The, vow, how, the things I do and the things I don't do and the things, what's he saying here? When addicts read Romans 7, they're going, oh, dude, Paul was an addict. <laughs> this guy, man, I wonder what drug of choice he used. Well, his drug of choice was sin. I had a guy one time that I studied the Bible with. He was a heroin addict, became one of my best friends. 
When we first started the Bible, we studied a couple times together, and we were studying at Steak and Shake, and about two studies in, he goes, Robert, can we kind of go back? Now, this is a guy that grew up in Illinois on the banks of the Mississippi River, small town American, and I said, okay, Burke, where, where do you, what do you mean? Well, sure, we can go back. He goes, well, I'm just missing some things, and I have not been honest about, you know, just I had some questions, and I didn't want to look stupid. I said, okay, well, you know, you do look stupid, but ask questions anyway. Okay, Burke, we, we were, gave each other a hard time. He goes, okay, so, so where do we need to go back to? And he said, who is Jesus? And, and I, I was absolutely shocked. So we began to talk about who Jesus was, and then as we began to try to lead him to a life within the light and being committed to obedience, when we read and when we discussed about behaviors that were out of line with God, he was convinced that I didn't understand because I was not an addict. And Bert was animated. He, was, he would get angry when we were studying. It was common for him to cuss when we were studying. It was common for him to cuss at me when we were studying. Yeah, Robert, yeah, you told me last week that I couldn't go out and sleep with women. Well, I got news for you. Friday and Saturday, I proved you wrong, bud. Did you now? Later on, he would tell me, you was in a group of people, and he goes, he ruined my life. And I'm like, well, I ruined your life? How'd I do that, Burke? Yeah, before you, I could do whatever I wanted to. I could sleep with a different woman every day, and then you showed me this Jesus stuff in the Bible. I can't even get close to a bed with a girl without feeling guilty. Good, I love ruining your life. It's a good thing. But he was absolutely certain that because of of my non-addiction and how compulsive he was in his disobedience, that his problem was heroin. I remember a couple of years in, he pulled me aside and he said, Robert, man, I cannot believe this. When we read that Romans 7, you talked about sin. He goes, I thought you were clueless. I didn't understand that my problem is not a heroin problem. My problem is a sin problem. And there's a lot more people out there. He goes, man, you get me. I could never get how you could get me because I'd say you don't understand, but I'd be thinking, man, you, I'm telling him that because I'm mad, but I think he does understand. And I never could understand why you could understand. But he goes, I'm finally getting it. This is a sin problem that I have. And one of the things we need to acknowledge is that sin is our problem that no matter how much we try to walk in the light, because of our human frailty, we will miss the mark. And rather than justifying the sin, we confess the sin. Justifying is the statement that I make that explains and excuses my sin based upon my perspective. Confession is the statement that reveals that I understand how absolutely my wrong my sin is, and it is not in disagreement with God, but literally confession is to agree with God exactly. And we need to understand the power of confession. So in 1 John 1, 9, he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word's not in us. That the Word of God, the, the Spirit, the sword of the Spirit working in my life cannot cut through a spirit that, and a heart that won't confess my sin. Now, two things we need to grasp when we confess as John speaks. First of all, we need to confess to God. And that's a dominant factor that he's saying in 1 John that I need to make sure I'm confessing to God. Where I grew up, in the church I grew up in, every prayer at some point, they would say, and Father, forgive us for our sins. Every prayer. I don't know if you guys have noticed that, but at the crossings, we don't do that very much. Back then, it was ritual, and I think it was cliche in the church I grew up in, but it started off to follow a biblical pattern that every time we pray, we might as well ask God to forgive us of the general sins and of the specific sins that are going on. It's a good thing, but we need to make sure that we're authentic when we come before God, and it's not just a matter of God. We we need to make sure that Father in heaven and in Jesus' name don't become cliché. Those are significant concepts that display a loyalty and an understanding of the greatness of God and of His Son. But in the same way, Father, forgive our sins can become cliche. So you need to make it a regular habit of confessing your sin to God. 
Then whenever you find yourself jealous or when you find yourself angry and out of line and when you find yourself involved in, in to where immediately you confess your sin, not just your weakness, not just your struggle, not just your inability, but the fact that you have sinned and there's a freeing power to that. But secondly, you need to make sure that you're confessing your sin, not only to God, but to a godly person. The church of Jesus Christ is a community of the godly and the spiritual. And those of us who are spiritual, and those especially that are mature, we need to understand that we need to confess our sins to each other, but we need to be calling the people that are younger to confess their sins. You see, John lists two benefits of walking in the light that we've just read. He says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all iniquity. We get that one, don't we? You go, praise God, I am forgiven. I'm cleansed. I'm not filthy. I'm not slimy. I'm, not, I'm none of those things. I am forgiven. And we constantly praise that one. But the second one, you're going, well, why is that? Quite frankly, if we're honest, we're going, I get how important that is. This next one, I really don't get. Because he says, the benefits of walking in the light is the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. But he also says, we have fellowship with one another. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. What's, what's that about? Well, here's what fellowship, godly fellowship does. Godly fellowship provides you the opportunity to feel guilty when you should and to not feel guilty, to feel forgiven when you shouldn't. Now just think for a minute, you're going, okay, what are you saying? We have godly fellowship provides us with the opportunity to feel guilty when we should. And here's the thing, there are times when we should feel a sense of guilt because we are guilty. But there are times when we need to feel forgiven. And it is through the fellowship of the believers that we are able to make sure that we have a balance on those things. Think about the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul writes, and this is the New Living Translation, to a church, and he says, I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you. Something that pagans don't do. I mean, what's going on here? Well, they've got this guy that's playing this mood music. Let's Marvin Gaye and get it on. But his stepmom's in the bed, or his mom. Kind of changes the whole emphasis of that song, doesn't it? You go, ooh, that's kind of, ooh, that's creepy. This is the guy that Bob Goff warned you about. I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you, something that even pagans don't do. I'm told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother, or mother, that's not clear, by the way. And notice what he says in verse 2, and you are proud of yourselves. Remember that word that we talked about, Zaid, keep me back from presumptuous sins? That word, Hebrew, the, the primary meaning is arrogant. So here are guys that are within the church. They've got this guy that's getting it on with his mom or his stepmom, and the church is looking back, and they're, they're proud. And you're going, how could you be proud of that? Well, and they're probably not proud of the activity, but they're going, we are gracious, we are kind, we're loving, we're all accepting. The same Corinthian sin that Satan was able to use at Corinth happens within our culture right now. And if we're not careful within our church, we will think that love means overlooking sin rather than confronting a sin that will destroy someone. So here they are, they are feeling this great sense of grace and forgiveness when they ought to be feeling a sense of conviction and guilt. And so Paul says, you're proud of this, but you should be in mourning and sorrow and shame, and you should remove the man from your fellowship. Even though I'm not with you in person, I'm with you in spirit, and as if though I were there, I've already passed judgment on this matter. Guilt is the declaration, the judgment of guilt. And he says, you ought to feel the, I've already said this guy is guilty. And when you're guilty, you ought to feel guilty. And as a church, you're guilty of allowing a guilty man to feel innocent. In the name of the Lord Jesus, you must call a church, a meeting of the church. 
and I'll be with you, present with you in spirit, and so will the power of our Lord Jesus. The apostle, their primary mentor, and the one they've looked to will be there, but he goes, this isn't just about Paul's opinion. When this whole thing's happened, it will be because Jesus shows up. God is love, and God is going to show up when you discipline when you refuse to allow someone to feel innocent when they're guilty, then you must throw this man out and hand him over to Satan. That doesn't sound very loving. Then there's the so that. So that his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved on the day of the Lord. The book of Proverbs, you know, there's the cliche, he who spares the rod spoils the child. It's not in Scripture. It's a nice cliche. It's maybe Scripture, a concept. that there. What the Bible says is he that doesn't discipline his child, he who spares the rod, hates his child. So when we talk about loving, and let's just go out and love, it is so important that we allow Christ to define love and not culture to define love. Because if we allow culture to do it, we can invite people in that are in rebellion to God, separated from God in this life, and because nobody calls them out on it when the eternity comes, they are separated forever. And friends don't let friends go to hell without knowing the direction that they're headed. The end result of making him feel guilty is to have him turned to Christ. But you see, here's the amazing thing, in that not only does godly fellowship provide the opportunity for you to feel guilty when you should, it also provides the opportunity for you to feel forgiven when you're not. This brother repents. He breaks off the relationship. Most scholars would agree that 2 Corinthians 4, as Paul deals with the church in 2 Corinthians, there's a different problem. They have so withdrawn from him that they're going, we're not going to have anything to do with him, even though he has repented. Even though he's turned away, they're not going to have anything to do with him. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul writes to him again and says, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. You see, godly Christ-centered fellowship provides an opportunity for conviction, which is a good thing. For those of you at their crossings, you know, the, the best illustration you hear, guilt is not something that is a product. It wasn't created by Satan. Guilt was a tool of God to turn the person that is in danger to the person who can help them. Guilt is the red light on the dashboard of your car. When the red light comes on, it says there's a problem that has to be addressed or your car is going to blow up. Several years ago, Marlon, Marlon, you in here? Marlon, he knew I was going to talk about him, so he stayed away. And Carrie, are you in here? Carrie, where you at? They were driving a little white sports car, Geo Metro. It was before its time, it was a four-door sports car, okay? And... uh It would do zero to like 90 in seven minutes. And so they're driving the car, and a red light comes on. And they never noticed the light, or they were ignorant to what the light was designed to do. In your car, a green light means go. An orange light means proceed with caution. And a red light means stop what you're doing and get something addressed right now. So they drove, continuing with a red light on, with a car that was only a year and a half old as it overheated, and it locked up the engine in the car, about two grand or three grand to get it fixed. When the guy's taking the engine apart, he goes, here was your problem. Your thermostat stuck. A $3.99 part that if the issue would have been addressed that the red light was trying to alert them to could have been handled painlessly and in a very short period of time. But the longer that the red light of guilt is ignored, the more costly you're going to find yourself when you try to repair it. Godly fellowship 
provides us an opportunity for conviction. The idea that I'm, I'm, I need to address something, I'm guilty, but it also prevents the opportunity for condemnation. Conviction is a good thing. Condemnation is a bad thing. Conviction says, I'm doing something wrong. I need to get this addressed. I'm involved in a bad activity. I need to stop. Condemnation says, I am bad. I might as well give up. It's the excessive sorrow. Guilt is a tool from God to turn you towards Him. Satan will take it and turn it away from God you away from God. And any time that you have guilt that's making you say, I might as well give up, it's no good, I'm no good, I'll never be able to do this, you need to realize that Satan has co-opted something from God and is distorting it into something that, was done, that is going to destroy you rather than refine you. John says, listen, you commit to doing the right things and when you blow it, just confess it. That's why in James 5.16, the Bible says, if you've sinned, you should tell each other what you've done. Then you can pray for one another and be healed. Hidden sin prevents healing, no matter how good you are at hiding it. So commit, if you want to live guilt-free, commit to doing the right thing. Confess when you do the wrong thing. And then finally, if you're going to live a guilt-free life, you count on God's faithfulness. You count on God's faithfulness. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us. And one of the weird things, guys, there are a lot of things when we ask if God is faithful that we just go, yeah, God is faithful. But if there is one area that Satan has been able to get us to doubt the faithfulness of God, I think it's more prevalent than any other way that we doubt God. It is to doubt that God can absolutely and totally forgive me no matter of what I have thought or done. That when we hear the messages of absolute forgiveness and victory in people's lives, those of us who have struggled with horrendous sin or secret sin or sins that we feel that are somehow that we've done that other people aren't doing, we have this Satan plants in us. Yeah, that, that promise of forgiveness is for that guy over there, but it's not for you. Oh, that, that confession of the burden being lifted is for them, but it's not for you. And we doubt the faith, not our faithfulness. We've already acknowledged, God, I've not been faithfulness. But unfaithfulness on our part has to somehow find a solution in the incredible faithfulness of God. That in our human condition, we are incapable of living sinlessly. But in the divine condition, He is incapable of not forgiving those who turn to Him and away from their sin. He cannot not forgive. And he has always been faithful. In Isaiah 1, a passage that just kind of cracks me up. In Isaiah 1, the prophet Isaiah, and he's not known for being like the most gentle guy. You I mean, Isaiah is, is, he gives a lot of promises. A lot of the prophets of the Old Testament wouldn't fit in well today in our churches or our workshops, quite frankly. Because they are in your face, I'm going to confront you with what's wrong, and you will repent, or God will deal with you. Their message is still as unpopular now as it was then, but now we get to choose our prophets. Isaiah 1 begins with these words, Come now, let us argue this out, says the Lord. So if you stage what's going on, there is a debate going on between God and someone, and here's who it is. It is between God and the child of God, who has turned to him, but still is acutely aware of how deep his sin is in the past and how constant the temptation is in his present. On one side of this debate, of this battle that's going on, in this corner you have the Almighty God, and he is affirming this, I can forgive you no matter what. And in this other corner is Professor ungodly peon. And his affirmation is, no, my sin is so bad and so different and so unique that the Almighty cannot forgive my 
sin. And so God says, let's argue this out. Here's God's opening statement of the debate, of the argument. No matter how deep the stain of your sins, it's not a surface sin. It's not a surface stain. For some of us, we know the full reality of how sin that we thought was meant nothing has stained our hearts. Things that we did in foolish rebellion that we thought were going to bring freedom and pleasure brought enslavement and feelings of shame and guilt. Not just on the surface, but down to the deep parts of our soul. God speaks to you today. He says, no matter how deep the stain of your sin, no matter what you've been involved in, abortion, abuse, not victim, not victimized, but the victimizer. Lust, unfaithfulness, adultery. Sexual addiction, whether heterosexual or homosexual. Things that go to the very core of our heart. God's opening line is, I can forgive you completely. I can remove it, not simply mask it, not simply bleach it. I can remove it. I can make you as clean as freshly fallen snow. Even if you're stained as red as crimson, I can make it as white as wool. You see, somebody from my background struggles with that reality. Starting off at a very young age, by being victimized by people sexually. And feeling like something was horribly wrong with me that caused me to act in a way that reinforced those feelings because now I am involved in things that are wrong and I know and I'm lost and I'm struggling and I've done so many things that deeply stain And as I walk and I look, I see others that my stain has affected. And I struggle sometimes. And how do I live a guilt-free life whenever I've got this stain? And John says, you've got to rely not on your faithfulness, but on his. Later on in 1 John, chapter 5, John would write these words. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Eternal life with God through Scripture is inseparably connected with our forgiven life in our current existence. And as John writes, he says, I'm writing these things so you can know about your forgiveness, so you can know about your salvation. The Bible records on two spectrums. It records what God said, and it records what God has done. Both of those components are going to be essential to you being able to rely on the faithfulness of God. Because those two things form two questions that you can ask when you're struggling with forgiveness. How do I, how, God, I know, I know, man, you, I, I, I've, but how do I know? Two questions you ask based upon what's written, not based upon some positive person patting you on the back and telling you're fine, because they may be patting you on your back and pushing you further away from God. I want to make sure that we're grounded in Scripture. The first question you ask is this. Did God say in Scripture that he would forgive someone like me? We've already read enough sins, scriptures, right? If we confess he's faithful, though let's argue this out. Other passage of scriptures we can look at, Micah 7 verse 8 says, Where is another God like you who pardons the sins of survivors among his people? You delight in showing mercy. That word mercy, the connection with that in that Hebrew is the idea mercy and forgiveness. God delights. He's not begrudgingly forgiving you. 
He's not like some angry person. He's not like you who begrudgingly forgives somebody but delights in it. So here's the thing. Did God say he would forgive someone like you? What's the answer? Let's do a little better. Did God say he would forgive someone like you? Now, if I were to ask you guys to simultaneously struggle with the sin that makes you feel unforgivable, I won't do that because it's being recorded and some of your friends will take notes and use it against you, okay? If I would say, what is the sin that you struggle with and have maybe committed or struggle with that keeps you from being able to feel that God could forgive you, there would be a hundred different answers within this group. But regardless of whatever you said that was different from your neighbor when I asked the question, does God say that he would forgive someone like you? The answer is unequivocally. Yes, 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 exclamation point. And he writes that so you can know about your forgiveness in his faithfulness. Second question is, did God show that he would forgive someone like me? Since the Bible of Revelation of God, what God says and what God did, then we get to say, what did he say and what did he show? That's the two evidence, now I can, and I base my faithfulness. And let me just real quickly, because we're running out of time, give you, let's go to two, let's do Old Testament and New Testament. In the Old Testament, one of the main characters, one of the people that they took great pride in, one of the great heroes of Bible school on Sunday mornings is the man David, King David. And we can list all of the things that he does that are good, but we never have the stories in Bible school about the things that he did were bad. We've got him killing Goliath in our little Bible stories, don't we? But we don't have him killing Uriah, his mighty man. Did you realize one of his best friends he kills to cover his sins? You see, there's a lot of things that I've been screwed up in. And whenever I read the story of David and, and Bathsheba, it begins with, it's in the springtime when kings go out to war, David stayed at home. I can go, yeah, man, if there's a battle and I can stay in the palace, I can relate and I'd go, I'd do that. I would stay home rather than going to war. It says he went up in the evening and he looked over the, 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 to the next house. He's at his penthouse. He looks over and there's a naked woman there. And God, you know, it's weird. Satan knows he's the king. He can have everybody. So he doesn't provide an ugly woman. Satan puts a beautiful woman there. And she's with no clothes on. Her name's Bathsheba. It ought to be an alert, men, when we start getting involved with a woman who has bath in her name, okay? You know what I mean? Like, not good, I'm staying back from you. Bathsheba. And he looks at her and he lusts. And I go, I could do that. I could understand that. Then he calls for her and has sex with her. I could do that too. I can completely understand. Then she comes back to him and says, I'm pregnant. And he begins to do everything he can to cover it up because he doesn't want to be embarrassed. And I go, man, I could do that no problem. I would try covering my sin. Much of my life was about trying to cover about what was really going on on me. I could probably do better than David. And then whenever he can't cover it up, he decides that he will kill his, one of his best friends to cover it up. And that's when a perverted, broken person like me goes, even I couldn't do that. I did this study in a small group with non-believers in it one time, and I went on to the New Testament to talk about Saul, and I said, oh, yeah, and I already started talking about Saul. You know, I said, you know, I need to go back because with David, that's not the only thing I can say that I wouldn't do. If you read the story of David's life, they never tell you in Bible school that when he's going crazy and doing his own thing, he goes and he kills villages, entire villages. He kills men, women, and children in order to cover up his own tracks, and God didn't tell him to. It's not about obeying a command of God. It's about covering his own tracks, and I could never kill a child like that, as messed up as I am. But David did, and God forgave and used him. Let's come to the New Testament. Who would he have as the big hero of the New Testament? Obviously, Jesus. Who's the human hero of the New Testament? Well, the apostle Paul that the Christians would have known as Saul. Saul was an arrogant religious guy who was so caught up in his own promotion and his own view of what was right, he killed Christians and separated families in order to promote what he believed. 
Did God forgive him? Paul said this, here's a trustworthy statement that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. All of us know that verse. We don't know the next verse. And God did this that through me I might be an, an example of his unlimited patience to all who might believe. He goes, why'd God pick me? God didn't pick Paul because he was so good. He picked him because he was so bad so that you and I here today could go, man, the Old Testament, David was a rough character. He wasn't a good guy. I struggle respecting David personally. When I look at Saul, I'm going, man, he was a murderer. He would break up families. What a loser. And yet God says, I picked him so that you would know I've said I would forgive you and use you, and I've shown that I will use you, and I will forgive you. You can live a guilt-free life, not because you're sinless, but because you're forgiven. Commit to doing the right thing. Confess to God and others when you don't. And count on the absolute faithfulness of God. He has said it and he has shown it, and you are no exception. Now go out and let God use you. In Psalms 51, verse 1, the Bible says this. What happiness for those whose guilt has been forgiven. What joys when sins are covered over. What relief for those who have confessed their sins and God has cleared their record. David writes those words after hiding his sin and being miserable for an extended period of time. And he says, I found happiness, I have found joy, and I found relief. And that's what God wants for you. And here's the thing, the world does not expect you to be perfect, and they will follow you if you're honest and weak. They will not follow you if you're a dishonest hypocrite. You will destroy your ministry because you will shut the door, not only of those who don't care, but hypocrisy shuts the door on the faces of sincere seekers. Matthew said those who want to enter can't because of your hypocrisy. So it's more than just about you feeling joy and happiness and relief. It's about you being able to be used by God to make a difference in the population of heaven. Would you bow and pray with me? Father, help us to know that we can be forgiven. Help us to know that we can experience joy and happiness and relief. And Father, you give all those things, not simply so that we can just be sort of contented Christians who go praise God in the assembly, but Father, so that we can go out And do as David said, Father, forgive me my sins, and then I will tell others about you. God, thank you for the ability to live guilt-free. Father, thank you for the ability that you give us to lead others to that same joy, happiness, and relief. In the name of Jesus, amen. 